Well, I wonder if we've ever lived in a cleaner, more sanitized time um, over the past year. Well, was it nine months? Our obsession with cleanliness has increased exponentially, hasn't it? Um, when before, maybe, maybe you're like this, this wasn't me. Did you ever worry if you had enough hand sanitizer in the car? Um, never for me. Um, consider the fact uh, that singing may be in fact spreading little droplets onto the neck of the person in front of you. That never stopped us singing before, did it? We worried about that now a little bit. Um, maybe frantically you've been one of those people who are worried that you've not got your mask on to allow you to enter a shop and you've had to sort of pull your jumper up, um, looking a little bit like you're about to rob the shop. Bizarre, isn't it? Bonkers to think how uh, we wouldn't have never imagined the world would be like this this time last year. But for many of us right now, our, one of our driving concerns is thinking all the time again and again, is it clean? Is it sanitized? Is it safe? Um, or if it's not for us, and that may well be the case for our neighbours and our friends, it's a real driving concern. Now, most of us have a driving concern in our life. Currently, uh, it may be staying safe and clean. Uh, predominantly, though, I doubt it is. It's probably more likely to be something like, what will make me look good? I know that's a big one for me. It, it could be what will make life easy and avoid conflict. How can I avoid conflict? Maybe a driving concern. It could be um, what will help me achieve more. Or maybe it could be what will help me uh, forget this thing which happened in the past. We'll have a driving concern. And these chapters Gled's just read were given to Israel to help them look at everything with one driving concern. Purity. Is it clean? The, these odd laws, and I only got Gled's to read out a few, for, thankfully for him, would have been read so often. And as we said right at the back in Leviticus 1, they would have been memorized and known off by heart by every little Jewish child from a very, very young age, because it's essential that they knew. There was a uh, American professor recently taught a class on Leviticus. And one of the assignments uh, saw the class try and follow the laws of Leviticus as much as possible for an entire week. Maybe a challenge for you there. This is what the professor wrote as he analyzed it. He said, during that week, the students had to keep a journal of their experience and turn it into me. There were understandable frustrations. One student noted, Leviticus 19.19 says I'm not to wear clothes, clothing woven of two kinds of material. That wipes out my entire wardrobe with the exception of a pair of polyester track pants. This is gonna be a long week. Others made similar observations. But by far the most common theme of the journals went something like this. Every day I found myself focused on thinking about ritual purity and impurity. Partway through the week, I realized that I was thinking about these things all day long and in every aspect of my life. And that's when it hit me. God cares a lot about our purity and our holiness not just from a ritual perspective, but also from a moral perspective, all day long and in every aspect of life. The Lord wants me to pursue purity in my heart, in my life, in my actions. He wants me to reflect his holiness in all that I do. I've been treating holiness way too lightly. Oh Lord, help me to be holy. The professor says, that's the kind of prayer you begin to pray when you soak in Leviticus. We're gonna look at the moral purity laws next time. Uh, but today we look at ritual purity and we need to ask why God asked the people to be ritually pure and clean. Gled's read uh, some about the food laws. There's laws around uh, bodily discharges, laws around skin diseases, laws about all sorts of things in chapters 11 to 15. And Jesus makes it clear that these laws we find are not binding now. 
the food laws have gone, the laws about skin disease have gone, about bodily discharges and childbearing are gone, they're no longer needed. But as the seminary experiment flagged up, these chapters still have good and important things to teach us. The law is still wonderful. Every day, we all have certain unsaid rules in our head, don't we, even now? A uh, little show of hands if you're with us on Zoom. Uh, has anyone ever eaten dog? No, no. In Asia, you might. Um, I did once. I didn't know it was at the time. Found out later. Uh, but normatively, that's not the case. Um, in Israel, it was pig. Bacon, pigs, not allowed to be eaten. What about worms or grub? Anyone eaten worms or grubs before? Pretty extreme camping trip. Lanks, yeah. Yeah, a few hands going up there, worms or grubs. Well, oddly, uh, you'd be allowed to eat them, but you couldn't eat lobster. Bizarre. Uh, how about we think about the most disgusting bodily functions? Uh, or maybe the most disgusting ones to us. It would probably be sick or poo, wouldn't it? Uh, Dunks, my, my little boy was a little sick yesterday. Uh, it was minging, his teddy had to go straight in the wash. Horrible. Um, or what about if you step in dog poo and bring it into the house? It's an utter nightmare. Uh, most of our rules, uh, which we have in our heads, are about what might pollute us and our homes, what might make us ill or dirty. Um, controversial opinion. Are any people here shoes off as you enter the house, people? I know the Lancasters are. They even provide slippers for you. There's a few people. I, I don't sit in that camp, but some people do. Um, interesting to know why. But we have rules about what might pollute us and our homes, what might make us ill or dirty. We have rules. These rules in Leviticus, though, are all about what might pollute God's house, his tabernacle, as we've looked at. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, Leviticus 15, 31 is a key verse, kind of sums up 11 to 15. And it says this here, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean. So they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. See that there? You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. These rules can seem odd and bizarre, bizarre but they were in place as things which offended God in his house. They're telling us truths about God and what makes him holy. We've seen as we looked at kind of the structure of Leviticus and how it's laid out, our series is looking at how a holy God can live amongst unholy people. We've seen in our structure how it goes. It's uh, up on the screen for you there. We have uh, talks of the tabernacle and sacrifices. Then we looked at priests, which we looked at last week. We have these laws on purity. And right in the middle, we're going to look at at the end of our time together here, the Day of Atonement. For God to live amongst his people, they need to be clean. You need a perfect sacrifice. You need priests to administer them. But they also need purity. They need to be clean. And the question is why? Why do we need to be clean. Now, we're not going to look at all those rules in detail. Uh, you can read them later. Uh, they outline what was clean and what was unclean. Doing something that was unclean would mean you could not be near God and near the tabernacle in between things. You couldn't be there. Uh, and these things are various, as we saw, from eating various animals, like Gled's word uh, read out, to uh, a woman having her period would make her unclean. Why are some animals kosher and others not? Uh, why are women unclean after childbirth when it's such a good thing? Uh, why did having a skin disease make you unclean? Why would having damp and mold in your house, uh, thinking of our front room right now, uh, make it and me unclean? It, it's really important that we see as we look at these rules that being unclean does not mean being sinful. 
It's not the same as sinful. You could be unclean and not have sinned very easily. Giving birth is not a sin. Uh, being unclean was normal for the Jewish people, and it was temporary. There were certain allowances put in place for how long they would maybe need to wash themselves or stay away, and then they could return again. Now, uh, here's how John Piper explains it. There's lots of things we can read, and it's going to come up on the screen, I think. And this is what he says, which I think is just helpful. He says, let's face it, and this may be what you were thinking when Gleds read out these laws. The laws about what things make a person ceremonially clean or unclean are strange. Yet when we study them, we see that everything that makes a person unclean is something that reflects the effects of the curse of sin on this world. Animals fed on other animals only after the curse. Bodies bled and developed disease only after the curse. Mold and mildew, the visible evidence of decay, came into being only after the curse. Everything designated unclean in the viscous demonstrated that things are not the way they once were in the garden, the way God originally intended them to be. All commentators indicate that what made you unclean was doing something or eating something that reminded you or resulted in something related to the curse. So bleeding, for example, with blood, as we've seen, it means life uh, as the source of it. And losing blood in any way, whether accidental or regular or after childbirth, was in some way losing life and a reminder of the fall from Genesis 3. And the reason you couldn't be unclean uh, amidst God? Well, the issue really was walking into God's presence, carrying any of these symbols of death, because God himself represents and is life in total fullness and abundance. He is life. Later, we'll see the need to be morally pure as well. But these chapters are dealing with ritual purity. Anything which showed the result of sin and its damage and pollution on the earth required ritual cleansing. And what was essential, and this is the key point, what was essential was that the Israelites knew at all times what state they were in. We saw how serious that was with Aaron's sons at the start of our reading, bookends the Day of Atonement. It, it would have been helpful for these guys to have sort of something like the NHS Track and Trace app, which worked, uh, telling you at all times if you're safe or not. Approaching God whilst unclean leads to death, as we saw. So it was essential to know what status you were. Exhausting, yes. I'm sure you felt that as it was being read out, but essential. And we said that these laws show us more about God and what he's like. They show us how, how pure and holy and full of life God is, that he cannot be in the presence of death, disease and decay. And these laws also remind us that all of that which we see, maybe more prominently now than ever before, is not how the world was made to be. God will restore this world. There will be a time of no more crying and pain and death and disease. And these laws pointed towards that time, remember their shadows, that time when he would set it all right and make the whole world clean again. How? Well, as we've seen through the blood of a perfect, sufficient sacrifice to atone for our sin and make us clean permanently. Let's look briefly, very briefly at Matthew 8. There's wonderful stories of Jesus. This is a, a wonderful one in Matthew. It says, when Jesus came down from a mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Ceremonial uncleanness. Here. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Any Jew reading this seeing this story of Jesus, reading this, who knew Leviticus well, would have been struck mostly by one thing. Verse three, Jesus reached out his hand 
and touched the man. He touched a leper. The ultimate in contagious skin diseases. Legislators being unclean as Gled's read in Leviticus 14, a disease which would have seen this man be a total outcast. He would have been living in poverty. Whenever people saw him approach, they would have yelled, leper, leper, to remind him to stay well away. Jesus touched a leper and instantly in the eyes of those watching would have made Jesus unclean. A disaster. But notice what happens. The man said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The leper recognized who Jesus was, and in faith he asked to be made clean. Jesus was willing, and immediately the man was cleaned. Instead of uncleanness of the leper transferring to Jesus, the opposite happened, and the totally clean and pure one that was Jesus transferred that to the leper who was healed, restoring him back to society as well as healing him, indicating that these laws as well were now obsolete, we're in a new age. Jesus had come. The man had faith that Jesus could make him clean inside and out, and he was made clean. For us, as we reflect on this, we see that for us to be clean today, instead of following these laws, instead of was it hand, space, face, whatever it might be, all we need to do is like the leper say, Lord, make me clean. Every time someone asks that, if he is willing, he says, yes, I am willing and able to make you clean. I don't know if that's so maybe you feel tonight, if you're listening in, maybe you feel guilty, weighed down by past failings, broken, maybe an outcast. You feel, come to Jesus and say, Lord, make me clean. And he will. He will. We no longer need to keep these ceremonial laws because Jesus came and abolished them. Mainly these laws were a marker of the Jewish people, a, a people separated off to reflect God's holiness to the nations. And as Jesus came to unite Jews and Gentiles together, many of these laws were abolished. Our marker now as God's people is no longer by what we eat or what we wear, but by faith in the Lord Jesus. That's what unites us and that's what makes us clean. So that's the laws 11 to 15. And then we see uh, what I've called the ultimate wash, which is the day of atonement, which follows directly from these laws. We see it's the same day as when Mo, um, Aaron's two sons had died. And the tabernacle was unclean. Not only do the people need to be clean, but the tabernacle needs to be clean as well. And the day of atonement was how it got clean. The death and the, um, the actions of Aaron's two sons had made it unclean. So the instructions are here to cleanse the tabernacle, but also to do it every year after that. Cleanse it after the death of the two sons, but do it year after year after year. And you see, uh, as we've seen, that the laws are being clean and unclean uh, were vast and undoubtedly priests and those around them uh, the tabernacle accidentally as well as willingly infringed them maybe so naturally the tabernacle got got dirtier and dirtier and dirtier in some senses and the day of atonement was the once a year total cleanse and declaration of the removal of sins of God's people uh, aiming to make God's continued presence amongst them possible how do we live with the holy God well we have the perfect priest we have the perfect sacrifice we have being clean and unclean. We have the Day of Atonement, which continues to help them do that. Now, Gled's read the whole thing out to us. I want you to imagine, as we look at it now, that you're in, in an Israelite in the camp that day. It would be a wonderful day, a day of excitement, a day of fear and trepidation, a day when you'd be fasting in preparation and, and, and mourning of your sin. That's how you'd approach the day initially. Uh, you'd look out. As you looked out on the camp, you'd see uh, around the tabernacle was the high priest. He wouldn't be dressed in his usual amazing garments. He'd be dressed as a servant. 
and you'd see the high priest enter the holy place. You'd see him do that after a whole bunch of preparation has gone on. He can't just wander in. You'd see the high priest go into the tabernacle and you'd hold your breath because you know where he's going. He's going to the holy place, the most holy place. Will he come back out alive is the question you'd have. And if he came out alive, you'd let out a sigh of relief because it means it had worked. Because this one man, this priest was representing you before the holy God. What was he doing? Well, we had this ritual with the two goats. The high priest would cast lots to choose which of the two goats will live and which will die. One is slaughtered as a sin offering, an offering up to God. And uh, one is class of scapegoat. And verse 20 is when we get this drama. So read down with me. If you've got your Bibles, 16 verse 20. It says here, it says, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. This is the scapegoat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed to the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. This would have been very public. And here again, we have a single figure taking the place of many, an innocent goat. One goat has hands laid on it and all the sins of the whole nation confessed on it. Remember substitution from our first sermon in Leviticus. And the sin of those people is transferred to the goat. And then one man takes the goat off into the desert, literally uh, to the land outside, the wilderness, so it won't ever return. And we're told this is a powerful illustration for the people and for us. If you were watching on an Israelite, you would have been powerful. You would have seen uh, probably the smoke rise as the first goat uh, was a payment for your sins. And then you would have seen the second goat taken far, far away. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. Look again, we down verse 21 and 22. And notice all the times it says the word all. He has to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins, and put them on the goat's head. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. It's used seven times in all in this passage. The word all, all our sins are carried away. The goat with those sins never to be seen again, gone into the wilderness. The uncleanness, the sin, the rebellion, all gone into the wilderness. It's such a powerful picture of what has happened to our sin if we trust in Jesus. And that's for us. We looked at that last few weeks as paid once and for all. But for the, the Israelites at the time, there was a fundamental problem with the Day of Atonement. It kept happening year after year after year. As the people walked back home, having witnessed the goats die and then go away with every step and with every heartbeat, sin occurred and wrath and guilt built up again, day after day, year after year. It's maybe a bit like your bathroom if it's anything like ours. How often do you need to do a deep, deep clean? And you realize that straight after the last one, it just got dirty again, didn't it? You might need to think you need a UV light to truly see how dirty it is. Maybe that's just me. But it needs a deep clean. It gets dirty straight away. 
And as we've seen, as we looked at the Day of Atonement, as we looked at the Leviticus, the sacrifices were inferior, the priests were inferior, the Day of Cleansing, the Day of Atonement here, at the heartbeat of the Pentateuch and the whole of the Leviticus was inferior. Why? Because the, the purity, the cleanness, the, the righteousness that is God did not become the people's there at the Day of Atonement. The goat took them away in, in many ways symbolically. They remain filthy and sinful. However, as we contrast this to Jesus, not only do we see that he's the true and better sacrifice, not only do we see that he's the true and better priest, but we also see that he is the one who provides the perfect, clean and righteous life we need to stand before God as one who is blameless. So finally, let's look at the results of being truly clean. There are loads of key results we could outline as we look at how Jesus came and made the Day of Atonement unnecessary. We've seen a lot of them in the last few weeks. We've looked at them. But I want to focus on one key one now, which struck me this week especially, and has been a great encouragement to remember. So we're going to look at Hebrews 10. Feel free to flick there. It will be on the screen as well. Uh, briefly, here's Hebrews 10, 1 to 10. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. That's what we're saying, the Day of Atonement again and again. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here's the result. Here's the key thing. We've been made holy, clean through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And I say this to the, the Christians listening, if you believe in Jesus today, hear this. And if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, I say this to you so you know what can be yours if you trust in Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, because he says that those who trust in him are united to him, what is his is now ours. We've been made holy through his sacrifice. That means we now, are totally and perfectly clean. We have no wrath on us now, no guilt on us now. The scapegoat is gone. If you're a Christian today, you've been made holy by Jesus' sacrifice. Our guilt before God for failing to keep his law has been perfectly carried by Jesus in his death. He satisfied the Lord's requirements for perfect obedience, his perfect life. His perfect obedience was given to us. And when we stand before God, which we all will, whether we believe in him or not, on the day of judgment, instead of seeing us and our sin and our filth, God will see Jesus and his perfect life. Jesus was holy and he declares that we are too. And this is staggering gospel truth. And it's important that we get it. It's really important that we get it because it's dangerous that if we forget it, it can seep into our theology of how we view God. It can make us adopt something probably more like what Roman Catholicism would teach than the gospel. We end up relying on Jesus to take away our guilt, a bit like a scapegoat, but then we keep relying on ourselves to be obedient, to become more like Jesus. But the Bible is crystal clear. 
our sin has been totally removed. We've been declared forgiven. The goat has died and been cast out totally. And our obedience, our holy life, which we'll look at next time, flows out from this. It isn't something we do to maintain our relationship and our status. Our standing before God is maintained because we're in Christ. Is what it calls the union with Christ. We're in Christ. We're united in fully in his death fully in his life and his resurrection he died it says the bible says we died he was killed and cast out into the wilderness so were we he lived a perfect life and god looks at us and sees the same he rose again and so are we i was reading about this this week as something else i was doing and eric raymond he writes this he's writing to preachers but he says this he says the shadows which we talked about were intended and have actually been fulfilled in jesus he says this to people who are preaching, do not dishonor Christ's work by underemphasizing and marginalizing or avoiding Jesus's obedience. And do not rob his people of the joy of resting joyfully in the certainty of being declared not only not guilty, but eternally clothed with the everlasting righteousness of Jesus. The joy of certainty of being declared not guilty. So finally, as we close, what are the results of this from which joy flows out? Two key results. Firstly, we can have assurance. Friends, think of the goats. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sin has been removed from us. Your sin has been totally taken care of, fully paid for. The sacrifice doesn't need to happen again. The perfect sacrifice was given by the perfect priest once and for all. So we are holy, as Hebrews says. When we forget this, we try and go back to earning God's favor. We, we think that there are things we need to do and we beat ourselves up massively and we fail. We view ourselves as the opposite to how God sees us if we trusted him. We can have assurance. Maybe you need to know that today. Secondly, the result is we have a new identity. I ask you how you mainly view yourself now. In some of my studies this week, this was a challenge to us to how often when I preach do um, I refer to those who have trusted in Jesus and label them as sinners. Sinners saved by grace, yes, but ultimately still sinners. Is that primarily how you see yourself if you trust in Christ? Now, now of course, it is truth in that. We are sinners. Our natural inclination all of the time without Christ is to rebel, to live life how we want to. We're unclean sinners without Christ. The key thing there is without Christ. With him, for those who have trusted in him, that is not the case. Only once in the New Testament are Christians described as sinners. Even though, of course, many places when believers are referenced as committing sin. What is not in dispute is our need to fight hard against sin. We'll see that elsewhere. We'll see that in a few weeks if we focus on holiness. Be holy as I'm holy. But how do we primarily see ourselves now? As those who are freed from sin and its effects. Do you see yourself as one who is, who is holy and clean, as one who's had the two goats done once and for all, purifying ourselves before God, having the guilt and result totally removed? We are totally clean now. And that is mind-blowing and undeserved. And it may make you squirm a bit as you think about it. It does me sometimes. But yes, because of Jesus and his perfect priestly sacrifice and his perfect obedient life, this is now true. I was struck. Uh, by the way, one of my friends um, who I study with prayed. He started his prayer by saying this. And he starts every prayer by saying this just about his father. God, thank you for these fellow saints here with me today. 
made me squirm initially. And then I thought he, he was right. Because of Jesus and what he's done, my primary identity is as a saint, as a child of God, not a sinner. Because we've been made clean. The stain, the dirt, the uncleanness of death is totally gone. My track and trace app will never buzz again and tell me to isolate or stay away from God. Not because of anything I've done, but fully and totally because of what he has done to remove sin and its effects. All because we're united to Christ. That's the marvellous truths we see throughout the whole of the because We see in the Day of Atonement and how insufficient it is. So we're going to sing. We're going to sing a marvellous song reminding us that for those in Christ, there is now no place for fear and unbelief because of the work of Jesus.